Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian boy is in your home. We're now continuing with Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church or seen the other way around that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, uh, today's show... I thought I would devote to talking about eschatology in Judaism and eschatology in the Catholic Church. Um, one of the purposes of this show um, is to, well, first of all, a number of listeners who are good Catholics just have an interest in Judaism because, of course, Judaism was the soil in which the Catholic Church grew. And Jesus was not only a Jew, but he was a good Jew, as we all know. And Judaism was, in a sense, transformed into the Catholic Church. And so there's a logical reason to be interested in, in Judaism and in what Judaism taught in the days of Jesus and in what Judaism taught in today's days. But there's another reason also, which is my hidden agenda for the show, is to inspire a kind of um, love of Judaism as the forerunner of the Catholic Church, but not to mistake that love of Judaism with a failure to evangelize Jews or to pray for the conversion of the Jews. And in fact, my hidden agenda for having this series is to inspire uh, in the hearts of many Catholic faithful a yearning to see the Jews through whom Jesus came to the world finally receive Jesus as their own Messiah and also come to know and love our Lord and Savior and their Messiah, Jesus Christ, and to join us in the Catholic Church, and to join us in heaven with all of the advantages which we as Catholics have through the Catholic Church. I'm not saying that Jews who don't enter the Catholic Church can't make it to heaven, but they certainly don't have the incredible advantages that we as Catholics have through the sacraments, baptism, confession, the most blessed Eucharist, most holy Eucharist, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and so forth which certainly certainly make it a lot easier and safer uh, to get to heaven. So in the light of encouraging that heart for the conversion of the Jews and prayer for the conversion of the Jews, I thought I would describe um, what, what the Jewish understanding of the f last things are. Eschatology just means the last things uh, or the... the uh, final things. I'll talk about in a moment the two kinds of eschatology and contrast that with what we know as Catholics. And um, I think you'll see when the two are compared that uh, we should share the wealth that we have, let's say, in what we understand about the unfolding of salvation history and the end of the world and what happens after you die compared to the Jewish understanding, the Jewish knowledge of it. I know as a Jewish convert myself that I actually was quite tortured uh, growing up, wanting to know what happened when you die, wanting to know, first of all, what the conditions were for being in a good state when you die, and also literally what happened after you died, uh, which I did not really know, much less what happens when this world ends, which I certainly didn't know, or what happens when the Messiah comes, which I certainly didn't know. We all know that, by the way, as Catholics. So that was the point 
that is the point of the show. So let me just launch in. First of all, eschatology, which is a word that I really like for some reason, means essentially the final things. And as Catholics, in, in Catholic parlance, eschatology has two separate meanings or two separate applications. One is the end of the world, the things having to do with the end times, the uh, second coming, the uh, passing away of this world, the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. All of that's referred to as eschatology. But what's also referred to eschatology is what happens at the end of our lives, the final things in our lives, which are usually referred to as the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So when I use the word eschatology, I'm talking about both the end of the world and what happens after we die. Now, with that introduction, uh, what do we know about... Um, let's, I'll start with the world's eschatology, so to speak, that we know of as Catholics. Okay, This is a very brief review, but I hope it's worthwhile. Uh, the salvation history in the eyes of the Catholic Church, if I may be so bold seems to me to be divided into three phases. You have a first phase from the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden until the coming of Jesus. Then you have a second phase between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And then you have a third phase after the second coming. Um, I'm hesitating because there's a little... The, uh, what happens after the second coming is very mysterious and there there are a couple of variants like 3a and 3b but i probably won't have time to go into that in, that, in this show so let me just divide into those three phases uh, the phase between the fall of man and the coming of christ the phase between the coming of christ as jesus and the second coming and the phase between the second coming for all eternity essentially i'll, uh, I'll call it the end of the world and all eternity um so, okay, that first phase, we know what happened to the soul. I'm, because I'm now, that, that was the outline of the states, the um, kind of from the world perspective. Now look, look at it from the perspective of the human individual when they die, okay? Between the fall of man and the coming of Christ, the gates of heaven were not opened. We know that. The gates of heaven were still closed. If you remember, on Holy Saturday... Jesus descended to the dead and released all of the souls of the righteous people from Adam and Eve until Holy Saturday who were trapped in this underworld which is in Catholic parlance called the limbo of the just or the limbo of the fathers. That's where all of the souls who were destined to heaven who had died before Holy Saturday were kind of trapped because the gates of heaven weren't opened until Jesus descended to the dead on Holy Saturday and open the gates of he heaven. And at that point, uh, there's some very beautiful medieval paintings of this, this huge stream of souls joyfully enters heaven, uh, led by Adam and Eve, because they were the first ones, right? And then you have, uh, in chronological order, all of the patriarchs and, and all of the saints of the Old Testament and all of the virtuous people of the Old Testament up until that point in time. So that in that first phase of salvation history, the afterlife consisted of the limbo of the just, um, also purgatory and hell. The gates of purgatory and hell, I think, were opened already. 
so souls when they died could go to purgatory, they could go to hell, or they could go to the limbo of the just to await the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, on Holy Saturday. That's phase one. Phase two, between Holy Saturday and uh, the end of the world, let's say, um, we know the gates of heaven are open. We know that souls, when they die, sure, they might end up in hell, even in this phase two, of course. They might have to go to purgatory on their way to heaven, or they might go straight to heaven, but the gates of heaven are now open, and the afterlife in the long run consists of heaven or hell. However, remember, we don't get our resurrected bodies until, the, um, I'll say, the end of the world. I'm being hesitant here because, because the relationship between the second coming and the end of the world is not settled in dogma. In, for the, uh, for the um, sake of this conversation, I will consider that the end of the world and the second coming and the general judgment are all more or less simultaneous. I'm doing that for simplicity. That is not dogmatic. That is a possibility, but there's a wide range of theological opinion that is acceptable and consistent with Catholic dogma. Um, not much... There's a lot about the sequence of those three events which is not definitively defined by the Catholic Church, uh, including the thousand-year reign of Christ. But I'm going to bypass that for now because the point of the show is to talk about Judaism and I'm talking about the Catholic view primarily to provide a contrast with the Jewish view. So for the sake of this conversation, let's consider that uh, the Second Coming will happen and very shortly after that will be the end of the world and the general judgment and then the new heavens and the new earth. So anyway, so back to phase two. Phase two, of course, we have um, hell, we have heaven without our bodies, and then at the time of the second coming, the general judgment, the end of the world, then we will receive our resurrected bodies and earth will pass away, heaven will pass away, and be replaced by what scripture refers to, in fact, Jesus refers to as a new heaven and a new earth. What that means, I'll leave aside for now. But there's a transformation, there's a huge transformation in both what we are like, so to speak, in heaven, because we will have our resurrected bodies, and we won't have them until then, and also what heaven itself will be like, and that earth, as we know it, will have passed away. This is actually, this is total dogma. That, that at, at um, i got to be careful. But at the time of the end of the world, the, the entire history of earth will have ended. Um, earth will, have, will pass away. I believe that the physical universe will actually pass away. And I'll, I'll give a scripture quote or two to support that view. But in any case, Earth will pass away. No more human souls will be created. Every human soul will be living in this paradise. Um, every tear will be wiped away from every eye. Uh, there'll be no death. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no aging. There'll be no work. We will be living in this intimate state with God, which somehow surpasses the heaven which we will have in between the first coming and the end of the world. Um, now, just to defend my statement 
about the um, uh, I'm, 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 uh, forgive me while I'm briefly uh, flipping through my notes in the hopes, I hope not vain hope, that I have the uh, quote here, because there's a very interesting quote in Second uh, Peter that, here I found it, that makes it sound very much like everything we know of as as the space-time, I'll call it space-time, the entire fabric of existence that we know, time and space, physics, um, gravity, light, um, how time and space are related, matter, energy, all of that will be replaced. All of that as we know it, the entire temporal and physical universe will be replaced at the end of the world. And here's my uh, defense for saying that. I'll read a passage from Second Peter chapter 3, uh, starting with verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's, of course, the second coming. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. Uh, you are to live out lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be kindled and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire. Now, let me make a little digression here, which is actually less of a digression than a metaphor. Um, when I was a university student, as a sideline, I got a projectionist license, and I was a movie theater projectionist. And, you know, the person who's in the booth behind uh, behind the back wall of the movie theater uh, controlling the movie projector and running the movie for everyone in the audience to watch the movie. Now, in those days, the projector's light was not an electric bulb. Electric bulbs weren't powerful enough in those days. Instead, what was used was a carbon arc lamp, is what it was called, which was basically, you had the film running through the projector, and right behind the film, a few inches behind the film, you had two electrodes, two sticks of carbon with a very, very high voltage running through them, such a high voltage that a spark would jump from one of those electrodes to the other, a very bright spark. And it was actually that bright spark continually jumping which provided the light to shine through the film, through the movie projector, and onto the screen, you know, 150 feet away or whatever it was. Now... That was a very flammable thing, that spark. And if it got too close to the film itself, the film would catch on fire, okay? So here's what happened. I was showing a movie. I was projecting a movie in the, in the projectionist booth one day. And um, I'm watching the movie. I'm not looking at the projector. I'm looking through the glass window at, at what's on the screen. And it's a Western, okay? So I see the bad guys, you know, galloping into town. I see the good guys coming into town. And then I see one of the buildings, you know, on the main street of town go up in flames. Let's say the saloon goes up in flames. And then I'm watching the movie, and the jail next door goes up in flames. And then I see the wooden sidewalk go up in flames. And then I see the street itself go up in flames. And the horses and riders go up in flames. And the sky goes up in flames. And eventually I realize that I'm not watching the movie showing the town going up in flames, but I had let the film got too close to the carbon arc spark and it was the film and the projector going up in flames. Of course, I stopped the projector and, you know, 
fix the situation and so forth, uh, splice the film together and, and after a few minutes could resume the projection. But that is my picture of the end of the world, is not that the um, everything on Earth will go up in flames, not that the Earth as a planet will go up in flames, but that the elements themselves will go up in flames, that the fabric of space itself will be dissolved. Now let me go back to Second Peter and read those verses. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will pass away, and the elements will be dissolved with fire. The elements, think of that, uh, oxygen and, and iron and, and sulfur and, and sodium, the elements themselves, which are just composed of atoms, will be dissolved with fire. That certainly sounds like, like the material world, the physical world, will somehow go up in flames or be dissolved, right? And then he goes further and he says, the heavens will be kindled and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire. So I'm going to move on from this, but I think I have a good case that I can make that this is about as good as a, a description as one could have made 2,000 years ago of um, what I saw happening in that movie theater happening to space-time. Okay, but with that, let me go back to the mainstream of the show. So that we know, what I've just done basically is gone through what we know as Catholics about um, the end of the world and, well, frankly, both worldly eschatology and um, individual eschatology. Now, let me switch to Judaism, which is kind of the point of the show. Oh, by the way, I forgot to say, this is a live call-in show, and I'm happy to take questions, um, preferably questions which are on topic, you know, on about the end of the world, about um, what happens after you die, about the Jewish beliefs, and so forth. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And if you want to call, I'm happy to take questions. And in about 10 minutes, about halfway through the hour, I'll take a short musical break. And that's, of course, an excellent time to call because then coming out of the break, I will simply turn to the call board and see what calls there are and take them before going back to my rambling. So anyway, um, now, I've just gone through the, the Catholic eschatology, worldly and individual. Let me go through the Jewish eschatology. The Jewish worldly eschatology, and as a matter of fact, the Jewish individual eschatology, is terribly crippled by one fatal flaw, so to speak, which is in Judaism, there is no uh, clear, clear thinking about what happens when the Messiah comes. Remember, Judaism is all about the coming of the Messiah. There are all those messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, which I'll get to, I hope. And the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament describe what will happen when the Messiah comes. Unfortunately for the Jews, so to speak, there are two sets of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. There are the suffering servant messianic prophecies, which refer to the first coming of Christ, right? We all know those, Isaiah 53, um, um, I'll read them in a moment, but, but you know, the suffering servant, um, you know, who's, who's mistreated and, and is silent like a lamb before his abusers and through his stripes we are healed and who takes on our sins for our redemption and so forth. There are all of those prophecies. And there are also 
the second coming prophecies, the victorious Messiah, the lion will lie down with the lamb, um, there'll be no more suffering or death, plowshares, excuse me, uh, swords will be beaten into plowshares, and so forth and so on. You've got those two sets of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, we know as Christians that some of them refer to Jesus' first coming and some of them refer to Jesus' second coming. But Judaism doesn't know that the Messiah is going to come twice. So it's faced with these two sets of messianic prophecies and it gets very confused as a result. And so Judaism has no clear understanding at all. It actually it doesn't even have a vocabulary to deal with the distinction between how the world will change when the Messiah comes, which we know happened 2,000 years ago, versus how the world will change when he comes again, the second coming or the end of the world. Both of those future events, from a Jewish perspective, they expect them both to be future events. We know that one's a past event and one's a future event. But from a Jewish perspective, they're, they think they're both out in the future, and they don't even have two words for two different words for how the world will change when the Messiah comes versus how the world will change at the end of the world. There, there are two phrases in Hebrew to refer to the state of the world. There is ha'olam hazeh, which is simply Hebrew for this world, which refers to this world that we're in now, right? You live, you know, you're born, you live, you have children, you die, you get buried, you know, your body rots in the ground. Fine. That's this world. Um, and the other phrase that they have in Hebrew is ha'olam haba, which simply means the world to come. And it means the world to come after the Messiah comes, and it also means the world to come after the end of this world. In other words, after the second coming. It's the same phrase. It occurs consistently in Jewish theology and in the Talmud. That phrase does, Haolam Haba. But totally mixed together are statements about what will happen after the Messiah comes versus what will happen after the end of the world. Now, this sounds like a criticism of Judaism, but it is a problem that is very well known within Judaism among Jewish scholars and Jewish theologians. And I will give two quotes to substantiate what I'm saying. The first is from the English language edition of the Talmud itself. Okay, So the editor who translated the Talmud into English is one of the foremost Jewish authorities on Jewish theology and the theology that's taught in the Talmud, right? That's only obvious. Let me uh, read what it says, what the editor of the Talmud, the English edition of the Talmud, says in the introduction to the Talmud. This is his own words. The conception of what is, the conception of what is to be understood by the future world is rather vague in the Talmud. In general, it is the opposite of Ha'olam Hazet, this world. This world is opposed to the days of the Messiah. Whether the Messianic era is thus identical with the future world, and these again with the period of resurrection, is an unclear point. The following quotation from Moore's Judaism, that's a book called Judaism, is a posset. Any attempt to systemize the Jewish notions of the hereafter imposes upon them an order and consistency 
which does not exist in them. Okay, in other words, there is no systematic Jewish notion of the period after the Messiah comes versus the period of resurrection, whether those are one period, two periods, what belongs to one period or what belongs to the other. Any attempt to systemize those notions imposes upon them an order and consistency which does not exist in them. In other words, you have to make it up as you go along because they are completely confused and stirred together. Now, similarly, the foremost Jewish theologian of our day, uh, Joseph Klausner, a rabbi who wrote well over 100 books, and by the way, it was heavily cited by Pope Benedict in his book, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Volume 3. Jo uh, uh, Joseph Klausner is is continually referred to by Pope Benedict in that book. That's He's almost like the Jewish Pope, if you see what I mean. In other words, when Pope Benedict wanted to have an imaginary conversation with his counterpart in Judaism, the person he picked was Joseph Klausner. Okay, That's how high his stature is. Let me read what Joseph Klausner said about the same problem. Throughout the post-biblical literature, the Messianic Age, the life after death, and the new world that is to follow the resurrection of the dead are constantly interchanged. For the two latter conceptions, the life after death and the new world, the Talmudic and rabbinic literature has only one phrase, the world to come, haolam haba. The world to come is frequently interchanged or confused with the days of the Messiah. Okay, so this is the problem that um, Judaism suffers from. So, <laughs> so that is, by the way, a real big problem with Judaism. Uh, Jewish evangelization, because the normal response to a Jew, if you try to tell him that Jesus was the Messiah, is the Jewish person will say, Jesus can't be the Messiah, because if the lion lies down with the lamb, the lion will get up well fed, and the lamb will have been his dinner. And we know that when the Messiah comes, the lion will be able to lie down with the lamb, etc. So Jesus could not have been the Messiah. This is, this is a reflection of the confusion between the period after the Messiah comes versus the period after the end of the world or the second coming. It's also the reason why Judaism, by and large, has no clear teaching about the afterlife. Because even the afterlife, as we know as Catholics from my little introduction, even the state of the soul in heaven is going to change. If you die, I mean, in other words, if we die now, we will be in heaven without our bodies. After the end of the world, we will have our bodies in heaven. There will be a resurrection of the dead, which in some uh, a resurrection of the, of the body of the dead. I don't know what that means. If anyone knows what that means, call in during the break. I mean, I'm kind of being a little flip. It's a mystery that I don't think is subject to our human consciousness. But nevertheless, we know it's true that that we will have our resurrected bodies after the end of the world, after the general judgment, and we won't have them before then. So Judaism has this understanding of a resurrection of the dead to happen um, at the end of the world, but it doesn't know whether the resurrection of the dead will happen when the Messiah comes or not, or whether there'll be a period between when the Messiah comes and when the dead are resurrected, which is another reason why 
It's easy for Jews to point to Jesus and say he can't be the Messiah because the dead have not resurrected. So what is the Jewish, what is the Jewish understanding of um, what happens after you die? Maybe I will um, take uh, that short musical break now and because we are halfway through the show and um, I will so I'll just I'll just play some very beautiful music uh, because of this theme of this show which is um, obviously this like intersection between Judaism and the Catholic Church I will play some very beautiful chant by a Catholic religious community in Jerusalem which is of um, Psalm 118 chanted in Hebrew by these Catholic religious and the the melody is a Hebrew melody but the chant is I think you'll you'll recognize it as very archetypically um, Catholic so if my technology works for me today um, uh, here we go I'm, I'm sorry we've come to the end of that beautiful chant. Um, I neglected to s- translate, but what they were sa- chanting was, um, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So um, and with that, let me go back. And I was talking about the Jewish understanding of what happens after you die. Now, the Jewish understanding of what happens after you die is extremely vague but they have a good excuse for it being extremely vague, which is that, um, remember, Judaism, the theology of Judaism was developed 
before Christ. And um, the Talmud, which is the repository of Jewish theology, by and large was developed before Christ. And the Old Testament was, of course, written be uh, before Christ. And the Jews don't have anything after the Old Testament. They don't have any New Testament. They don't have really any um, revelation that postdates the Old Testament. That's universally accepted in Judaism. Um, and the state of the soul after death before Christ came was vague, right? It was vague because, remember, it was limbo. It was the limbo of the just. No one had gone to heaven. So it's not surprising that Judaism has no teaching, really, about, um, about heaven because when Judaism got frozen, Judas, Judas, Jewish theology got frozen, there still was no heaven, so to speak. At least there was no one in heaven with the possible exception of Elijah and Enoch, but that's getting a little bit a little bit uh, pedantic to make that exception. So uh, my contention is that Judaism has no clear understanding of what happens after you die because essentially it hadn't happened yet. Because w when you died, there was a possibility, there was a sense of purgatory. We know that from the book of the Maccabees. That's why... Uh, the Protestant Bible stripped out the book of the Maccabees is because it talked, essentially it implied a purgatory. So we know that there's a state of the dead in which prayers can help them. That's actually what we know from the book of Maccabees. Um, and um, uh, there, there was a, we, we, Judaism could in principle have known about hell since there was a hell before Christ came, but there was no heaven in the sense that no one had been in heaven. So the fact that Judaism has no clear understanding is only a reflection of the fact that Judaism predates the opening up of the gates of heaven. Now, uh, nonetheless, the resurrection of the dead, that sounds like a contradiction, right, what I'm saying, but the resurrection of the dead is, on the other hand, a fundamental principle within Judaism. It's such a fundamental principle that it is one of the 13 core principles of the Jewish faith, you know, we have the credo, right? We have the I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, you know, in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and so forth. Well, there is essentially a Jewish creed, which was um, system, systematized, never mind, was made systematic. Uh, and I think it was about the 11th, 12th century by Maimonides. It might have been the 13th century. And it is the 13 principles of the faith, principles of the Jewish faith. And one of them, is um, the, uh, is that? Um, uh, let me see if I can find. Here's the here's the statement from uh, the Creed of Maimonides. I firmly believe that there will take place a revival of the dead at a time which will please the Creator, blessed be His name. And Maimonides also said that um, anyone who does not believe in the resurrection, quote, has no share in the world to come. In other words, loses his salvation. So belief in the resurrection of the dead is a core belief in traditional Judaism, um, but it um, but it is not even clear when it'll take place. Right? Maimonides kind of carefully, almost legalistically, says there will take place a revival of the dead at a time which will please the Creator. In other words, he's punting on whether it'll happen when the Messiah comes or whether it'll happen at a later date. Okay. So. Um, so what is the, you know, kind of the traditional Jewish belief is, um, this sounds rather grim, but it's that at this point in time, before the coming of the Messiah, 
which is, of course, what Jews think it is. Uh, when you die, you get buried, and you lie in the ground until the Messiah comes. And when the Messiah comes, there will be this resurrection from the dead, and um, everyone will come back to life, and then there will be heaven, essentially. So that's, uh, and, and to make it um, even more kind of gruesome, is that one of the ideas associated with this belief is that the messianic that during the messianic age the dead will be brought back to life in Israel in Jerusalem and that's why throughout the centuries Jews if they could manage it wanted to be buried as close to Jerusalem as possible so they would be among the first to rise at the resurrection of the dead and the belief was even that the dead bodies would roll underground to Jerusalem in order to arise in Jerusalem. And that process of rolling underground would be a painful process. It seemed to be a form of purgation, but it was a painful process. Now, no one could be buried in Jerusalem because it was a violation of the holiness of the city. So they wanted to be buried as close as possible outside the walls of Jerusalem, which is why if you go to Jerusalem, you'll see the hillside of the Mount of Olives is covered wall to wall with Jewish graves. It's packed solid with Jewish graves because throughout the centuries, uh, Jews, if they could manage it, wanted to be buried as close as possible to Jerusalem. So, okay, that is the Jewish eschatology, um, probably... Um, you know, probably as as uh, as close as I can, uh, or as well as I can explain it. I see there are no questions, uh, no no callers have called in, um, which I don't know whether that means that you're all bored to tears and I've turned off the radio, or you're spellbound, um, which I find um, very gratifying if you're as interested in this stuff as I am, because I can't help thinking I'm the only one who would be interested in it. But as you can tell, I am now. I, I alluded to the two conflicting sets of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, the suffering servant ones and the victorious Messiah ones. So let me just read some passages from Isaiah. First of all, the suffering service, servant ones, I think these verses are familiar to us, but they'll certainly provide some color to our thoughts. Um, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Very beautiful. And of course, it's a, 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 a brilliantly um, clear depiction of Jesus. Um, and it is, of course, one of the suffering servant messianic prophecies. However, also in Isaiah, you have the other kind of set of messianic prophecies, the second coming messianic prophecies, 
I'll re I will um, read some of those. Um, uh, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the lion and the fatling together and the little child shall lead them. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Um, this, uh, they shall not hurt or destroy at all in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse shall stand as an ensign to the peoples. Him shall the nations seek, and his dwellings shall be glorious. Uh, and then from Ezekiel, my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. So on and so on and so forth. Uh, Protestant scholars have identified over 500 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And there are several different categories. They're the birth prophecies. Um, there are the... Um, crucifixion prophecies of course there are the palm sunday prophecies but there are many many suffering servant prophecies and many many victorious king prophecies and these two sets of prophecies do not come you know with the uh, suffering servant ones being written in red ink from the bible and the victorious king ones being written in gold ink they don't come with a little parenthetical uh, you know, parentheses before them saying these are first coming prophecies or second coming prophecies. They're mixed together. Typically, they're mixed together in the very same passage, which makes it even more confusing. I don't want to take the time to read that right now, but if you read the Messianic prophecy in Daniel chapters 9 through 12, it's extremely interesting because it begins, uh, maybe I will read them because I do have uh, 10 minutes. Um, it begins by giving the exact year that Jesus will start his public ministry. In, in other words, it begins by actually giving the exact year when the Messiah will come, the first coming of the Messiah. It will describe um, him being killed, actually, and then it immediately goes into a second coming prophecy as though there's no time in between the first coming and the end of the world. Uh, by the way, Jesus himself, I'm not going to say made the same mistake, but I, I probably will have time. I'll, I'll go to uh, Jesus in Luke 23, 21, I think. He does exactly the same thing. He gives a prophecy of, of um, his death and the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened about 40 years later. And then he immediately goes into a description of the second coming as though it will happen the next day. 
And that's the case in the Old Testament. And that's one of the reasons why the Jews are so confused about what the relationship is between the day when the Messiah will come and the day of the resurrection of the dead, or, or the halom, ha'olam haba, you know, in other words, the world to come. You know, is that the world after the Messiah comes, or is that the world after uh, the, or is that the world after the resurrection of the dead? So here's a prophecy from uh, the book of Daniel. Okay, before I read it, this, the Hebrew word for week is Shiva. The Hebrew word for seven is Shiva. You might have noticed the Hebrew word for week and the Hebrew word for seven are one and the same word. They don't have two words. So whenever you see the Hebrew word Shiva, you don't know whether it means seven or week, except by context. And if you see the plural of it, you don't know whether it means sevens or weeks. So everywhere in this prophecy where uh, Daniel says weeks of years, you can think of that as sevens of years or seven years. A week of years is seven years. I'll go through the arithmetic after I read it. Seventy weeks of years are decreed concerning your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay? So, 70 weeks of years are decreed until the coming of the Messiah. Actually, until redemption comes through the death of the Messiah. So, those 70 weeks of years, 70 times 7 is 490. So, he's saying, the prophecy is saying, that in 490 years, your redemption will have come about through the slaying of the Messiah. Now, when do those 490 years begin? He goes on to say that. Let me read the next verse. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So, whereas the prophecy began with 70 weeks, now it's being broken up into sections. A section of 7 weeks, then a section of 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks, so it's still a shorter week. And then a final week, which is when the the week when the Messiah will be here, seven years. You'll see he modifies that to a half a week later, making it three and a half years. Um, and then, and then the end will come. So, okay, the, where does this timeline begin? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. Okay. So that is, that is um, 69 weeks, and then there'll be the seven weeks when the Messiah, excuse me, the, the seven years when the Messiah is here, in other words, the final week of years. So that's the 70 weeks of years, or 490 years. Now, the time clock begins when the word goes forth to restore and build Jerusalem. Uh, we know when that was. That was in 458 B.C. We know that exactly from the book of Ezra, 
um, uh, verse, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 11, um, the word to restore Jerusalem refers to a decree that's described in the book of Ezra, a decree issued by Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, during the Babylonian exile. Remember, the Jews were sent into exile in Babylonia around 570 BC, and then they came a benevolent Persian king that not only allowed them to return to Jerusalem, but actually funded the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. So that timeline begins in 458 BC when the word goes forth to restore Jerusalem. Then there will be a period of seven weeks, that's 49 years, which brings us to 409 BC, which is exactly the year when the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. It took them 49 years. And then after the Jerusalem was rebuilt, there will be 62 weeks, which will be a trouble time. That's 434 years. 62 times 7 is 434 years. And then the Messiah will come. Now, 434 years after 409 BC, which is when the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, uh, brings us to 26 AD. And the uh, church historian uh, and church father, Bishop Eusebius, gives 26 AD as precisely the year of Jesus's, the inauguration of Jesus's public ministry. Okay, so this is actually why in the New Testament you see, um, I don't have that verse before me, but you remember um, when they're talking about John the Baptist, um, the New Testament says all the people were in expectation asking, is he the Messiah? Because they knew it was the time when the Messiah should come. That's why they knew it was the time that the Messiah should come. So here you have this clearly Old Test, excuse me, Old Testament first coming of Jesus prophecy that says that Jesus will come around 26 AD and then after about three and a half years uh, for, uh, here and for half of the week he shall cause suffering, a sacrifice and offering to cease and upon the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator um, forces from the evil one shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the continual burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate um, uh, and so forth and so on. It's, um, I don't have time to read it. You can read it yourself. It's, it's in the book of Daniel. But it is a prophecy of um, the second coming. It's a prophecy of the tribulation that's going to come just before the second coming. And in fact, Jesus himself confirms that this prophecy in Daniel is a prophecy of the end of the world when, or a prophecy of the second coming. Um, and I'll just read one of those passages. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 15 says, So when you see the desolating sacrilege spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, that's Matthew 24, 25. Note, Jesus is actually explicitly quoting Daniel, saying, when you see the abomination of desolation, the desolating sacrilege, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that's the verses I just read, um, he says this in the context of a description of the second coming, the tribulation to precede the second coming and then the second coming. And Daniel says it immediately after his description of the first coming and his dating of the first coming. So you can see from this, why, without the additional revelation of the New Testament, the Jews are in a hopeless condition 
to try to understand that there will be a period in between the coming of the Messiah and the second coming or the end of the world or the resurrection of the dead. So I'm exhausted. I hope that was clear. I know it wasn't crystal clear because it's intrinsically confused. But I hope it wasn't too, too, too bad. And um, uh, anyway, you've been listening to me, Roy Shoman, on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Uh, as I have um, started doing, I will close with a little musical selection, um, which actually is um, also from that same group. And uh, it is the Hail Mary. Whoops. The Hail Mary chanted in Hebrew. Um, so another very beautiful little little intersection between Judaism and Catholicism. And uh, I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. And I actually also hope that you um, pray that Lord Jesus come again soon, that he shorten the days. Unless those days be shortened, even the elect would be lost. But for the sake of the elect, those days should be shortened, the days of the tribulation. And that you pray for the conversion of the Jews, which has to happen before the second coming. And with that, let's go to the Hail Mary uh, chanted in Hebrew. And of course, the station uh, will cut me off or cut off this song at the appropriate time. Shalom Yeah.